0: And that's what camps like. Okay, see you kids. (laughs) No, We we, we work for a sports camp, my wife and I, Catherine, uh, work for a sports camp down in Branson, Missouri. We see 20,000 kids a summer. And uh, it is an awesome opportunity. I never imagined that I would be doing ministry. Uh, You see, my life, um, I accepted Jesus Christ as my savior when I was eight years old. But I didn't fall in love with Jesus until I was 19. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is what does it mean to be a passionate follower of Jesus Christ? Not a believer, not a Christian, but a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for this morning. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to open your word, Lord. And just pray as, uh, as we dive into your book, Lord that you would penetrate our hearts, that you would make us different people, that we wouldn't just walk into this building and call it being a Christian. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, open our thoughts to what your word has to teach us this morning. We'll ask it in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Vince Lombardi, greatest, possibly one of the greatest football coaches ever. The the Green Bay Packers were playing the New York Giants, and you old-timers might remember this game. But uh, the the Packers were playing the uh, the New York Giants, and the Packers lost the game 73 to nothing. 73 to nothing. Now, Lombardi's like the standard for football coaching. Sorry, all my illustrations are going to be sports-related. If you're not a sports fan, sorry. But, uh, But they lost 73 to nothing. And so the next day at practice, uh, awesome story about Lombardi. He gets in front of his team, and you know his team's probably dejected. They just got absolutely drilled by the New York football giants. And Lombardi stands up, and he holds up a football, and he says, Gentlemen, this is a football. Because he had to go back to the basics, back to the simplicity back to the very fundamentals of what the game of football is about and so every time I teach I go back to the basics back to the basics y'all this is the Bible this is the Word of God it's made up of 39 books in the Old Testament 27 in the New the very theme of the Word of God is simply this the glory of God through the person of Jesus Christ if you're if you're taking notes this morning i'd ask you to just jot down five letters a m p e c a m p e c a stands for anticipation genesis through malachi anticipation of the person of jesus christ who is going to save the world who is going to save mankind genesis through malachi anticipation he's coming he's coming he's coming in fact the first mention of the need of Jesus Christ to come and save the world is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. We're fallen, right? And what does God promise? He's he's laying out this curse and he says, but the seed of the woman will will bruise the head of the serpent. That seed of the woman, the woman being Eve, the seed being the person of Jesus Christ. Another great illustration from Genesis chapter 3 is this. Adam and Eve sinned. And what do they cover themselves with? Y'all remember? Fig leaves. It's their own idea, right? It's their own self-righteousness. Adam and Eve come up with their own concept to cover their sin. But what what does God give them? Y'all remember? Skin of an animal. What's he have to do to get the skin of an animal? He has to kill it. An innocent animal. The blood shed so that the sin of Adam and Eve could be covered. The first time you see mention of the person of Jesus Christ being needed to save mankind. That's the A. Then the M. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Manifestation. God has now come down from from the heavens in the person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh manifested on earth. Then the P. Proclamation. The book of Acts. The book of Acts transitions us now from Jesus being on earth. Transitions us to a point where now we enter the church age, the proclamation. E, the explanation. The rest of the Bible, except for Revelation. Romans through Jude. The explanation of how we are to live as the church, how we are to respond. And finally, C, the culmination. The fact that Jesus Christ will come back and set up his literal thousand-year reign with his people. Amen? Amen. That is the story of this book, and that has nothing to do with what I'm teaching. But every time I stand up, I want people to know how awesome this book is. You see, people for thousands and thousands of years have dis- tried to discredit this book. Time and time again, Lee Strobel, C.S. Lewis, they set out to discredit this book. And what happens? They get saved. Because when you try to study this book, it'll change your life. And it changed my life. I, uh, I, I grew up in the church, I was at church all the time, but y'all, I lived in sin. I had sin in my life. And Satan rendered me useless, useless. I offered nothing to the church. I showed up on Sunday. I was one of those guys that wanted to play in the games on Friday night, but I didn't want to practice. The only time I ever opened this book, cracked it, was Sunday morning. And if if the only time I crack this book is Sunday morning, then it's too late. Because this is not a religion of do's and don'ts, but it's a relationship of I want to's. Amen? Because we love our God. Open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're going to study Matthew chapter 4, specifically the temptation of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew, as we talked about, is one of those books that falls into the manifestation portion. In other words, God has come down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Matthew is specifically written to the nation of Israel, okay? We have 400 years of silence from the time of Malachi to when Matthew writes. The reason he is writing specifically to the Jews is he's saying, hey, the Messiah that is prophesied in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in the new testament in the person of jesus christ so it's important for matthew to write the first book of the new testament to the jews because it connects it brings continuity to our bible saying that the the person that is promised in the book of isaiah genesis and throughout the entire old testament is now found in the person of jesus christ in the book of matthew and this is what it says i'm going to start in chapter three actually at verse fifteen At 13, excuse me, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as John was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So this is the setting, okay? Christ has just been baptized, ready to enter the ministry portion of his life. He's about 30 years old, okay? And Jesus is now going into the world and going to begin to proclaim himself as the Messiah, Okay, so that's the setting. Incidentally, if anybody ever has a conversation with you that the Trinity is not talked about in the Bible, take them to Matthew chapter 3. Who do you see? God speaking from heaven, Jesus being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending in the person of a dove. The Trinity working in their unique roles, yet united in purpose. Okay, Matthew chapter 4 starts this way then jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil okay i already have a problem with this passage because i taught it so many times the wrong way as a kid listen to this then jesus was led by who the spirit now in my mind every time i used to to think about that passage who was leading jesus into the the desert satan right in my mind, it's always, no, Satan took Jesus into the desert. But no, it says specifically in the Word of God that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So I, I started studying this passage and I went, okay, i got to deal with that now. I can't just pass over that. And so I went and I flipped my Bible, and if you'd flip with me to the right, to chapter Hebrews chapter 4, it's going to explain why. Because at first, at first glance, at first reading, that doesn't make sense to me. But if I flip over to Hebrews chapter 4, and I look at verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So we have a great high priest that understands what we've been through so Jesus had to go be tempted because he loved us and he wanted to be able to say that when I went through struggles when somebody in my family dies when uh when I talk to people dealing with pornography or whatever it is he wants to be able to say you know what I was there I went through it too I know what you're feeling Back to the book of Matthew. Should have marked it better. So Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil so that he might have an understanding of what you and I go through. And it says this, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, notice something about Satan here. Jesus has been doing what? Fasting, right? 40 days and 40 nights. What are you and I going to do if we've been fasting 40 days? I'm going to Chick-fil-A, sweet tea. That's what I, you know, I mean, I'm going to hit some, some major food, right? But Satan comes after Jesus right where he is what? The weakest you notice that? Jesus is so hungry, 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, he didn't come, Satan doesn't come after him with lust. He doesn't come after him with gossip. He comes after him with the very place. He's the weakest. And how does Jesus respond? Notice that? It is written. The word of God. He is prepared. Now, do you think he just flipped his Bible open and said, no, Satan, let me show you where I found this? No, it's in his heart. It's in his mind. He's got it memorized because he knows that when we, when we face temptation, y'all, when we're facing the things in our world that make us fall and make us struggle and render us useless for the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we have the word of God in our heart, we're going to be prepared. The full armor of God, right? We talk about it in Ephesians chapter 6. There is one offensive piece of armor. What is it? The sword, the word of God. It's the one offensive piece that we have in our armor. So Jesus responds with the word of God. Now check this second temptation out. The first temptation, if you'll notice, I just want you to make a note, is to deal with Jesus' physical appetite. Okay, He's hungry. Physical appetite. Every temptation falls under three types of temptation in the Bible. Physical appetite, personal gain, and power and glory. I'll say them again if you're taking notes. Physical appetite, personal gain and power and glory. Every temptation known to man falls under those three things. Now back to verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God To the test. So the devil takes Jesus where? To the top of what? To the temple. Now I used to think that this passage was talking about Jesus showing his authority and his power. But then I began to study my Bible and I realized in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 it says that the Messiah of the nation of Israel is going to come down from the top of the temple. So Satan is not tempting him to show his authority, though it would show his authority, right? He's tempting him to say, you are the Messiah, and I'm going to show you that I'm the Messiah right now from coming down from the top of the temple as prophesied in the book of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And if Jesus shows himself as the Messiah by coming down from the temple, what does he not have to do? If he's already claimed the Messiah, what does he not have to do? He doesn't have to hang on a tree. He doesn't have to hang on a cross for you and I. But he knows, he knows it's not God's time yet. That's not what God had planned. Notice how Satan tempts him this time though. What does Satan use this time? He uses the scriptures to tempt Jesus. But notice, he tempts him this way. He says, he will command his angels concerning you for they will lift you up in their hands. But convenient for Satan, he leaves out five words. He's quoting the Psalms, 119, verses 11 and 12, and he leaves out five words. It should read, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. In other words, that the angels will protect you, Jesus, when you are within the will of God. But Satan conveniently, craftily, tweaks the scriptures. And does he do that today? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the second temptation, personal gain. The first one was physical appetite. He was tempted to change the, bread into, or the the stones into bread. The second one, personal gain. That he wouldn't die. That angels would protect him. And then thirdly in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So the devil takes him to the highest mountain. Now scripture talks about the devil and it calls him the prince of the power of the air, that he is the ruler of the world. At this point, the world that we live on is the dominion of Satan. But we know the end of the story. We know the culmination that Jesus Christ will come back and take his people and will rule the world for a literal 1,000 years. But Satan takes him to this high mountaintop and he says, all this can be yours. You can have all the world. You can rule the world. Now, is Jesus going to rule the world? Yes. Is it his time yet? No. Will we know when it's his time? Yeah, you better believe it. He's going to come down with power, with might. He's going to come back for his people. But it's not his time. It's not the time that God has appointed yet. For Jesus to rule the world. So Satan is tempting me. Again, he's saying, hey, you can have all the world right now. You can be called the Messiah of the world right now. The temptation, again, is that he would not have to die. He'd already rule the world. But it's not God's time yet. Power and glory is that third temptation. That he could have all the kingdoms of the world. Now, I went back and I continued to study this because I went, now how is Jesus tempted in every way that you and I are? Those are the three temptations that are outlined. Now watch this. Flip in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. This is so cool. The Bible is so unified in purpose and content. Physical appetite. Jesus is tempted to turn the stones into what? Eve is tempted with what? The apple. Physical appetite. Okay? Eve and Jesus. We're going to see the parallel here. Physical appetite. The apple and the bread. Second, personal gain. That Jesus would not die when he jumped off the temple, right? That the angels would protect him. And what does Satan say when, it, uh, when, sh- when Eve says, hey, y- you know, I'm not supposed to eat this apple. He says, you will not surely die, right? You will not surely die. Are you sure that's what God said? Personal gain. And finally, power and glory. Jesus is tempted with all the kingdoms of the w- earth. Eve says, or Satan says to Eve, he says, you will be like God knowing good and evil. You will be like God ruling all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. You will be like God knowing good and evil, Eve. The three temptations that we see in the Garden of Eden, the three temptations known to mankind, are the three temptations that Jesus Christ goes through for us. And I think it's such a good picture. You know, he didn't have to go through those temptations. Theologically, there's not any great importance for him to go through those temptations. You all know why I think he went through those temptations? Because he loves us. And he wants us to know that when we go through hard things in life, when we hit the very bottom, that he can be there with his arm around us. And he can say, you know what, Chad? I was there. I was there when you hit rock bottom. I know what that felt like. I know what it felt like to be at the very low point of your life. And y'all, I I, I see thousands of kids every summer. At my camp alone, we see 4,000 kids. And I see the fruit of unconfessed sin, undealt with sin every day. As As I pray with these kids and they're crying their hearts out because their mom and dad yell at each other because they they don't know how to read their Bible because they've never seen their parents do it. I have to deal with the fruit of mistakes that we make as people. And one of the biggest problems that we see in the church today is that people are unwilling to deal with their sin. And me included. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching at me. Because for too long, I came to church and I sat in the pews and I claimed Christ. And I ruined his name. I defiled his name by the way I lived my life. And we're all guilty of that. At some point in our life, we're all going to be guilty of that. And I'm not trying to preach at you. I I want you to see that we have a need for a Jesus that loves us a ton. Don't we? Amen? I know I I have a two-year-old daughter that's sitting in here, and I'm about ready to have a son in five weeks. And I love my kiddos more than I could ever express, and, and you all that are parents know exactly what I'm talking about. You would die for your kids. You absolutely would die for your kids, without a question, because we love them so much. How much more do you think our daddy in heaven loves us? There's a great story, and it's a video uh, that the, the guys are going to queue up here, but I'll intro it for a second, uh, about a guy named Dick Hoyt and his wife, and they desperately wanted to have a kid. And they tried and tried and tried to get pregnant, and finally, that special day, they had their son. And uh, when their son came out, the, the cord was wrapped around his neck, just like my, my little Miley. The cord was wrapped around his neck. And uh, unfortunately for Dick Hoyt and his wife, the oxygen just didn't get to his, his son's head enough. And so he was born paralyzed, was going to be in a wheelchair the rest of his life. The doctors, the the school administrators, everybody that he went into said, hey, your kid's never going to be normal. He can never hang out with the normal kids. And I love this parent. He said, no, my kid's going to be with every kid, just like normal kids. And so he fought to get him in public schools, and he fought to get him where he needed to go. And they went and they they hired these people from MIT to make him a special wheelchair. So he could actually, he's got this little lever right here, and he can actually type letters with the side of his face. This kid is remarkable. Well, Story goes: the uh, th- this kid turns 15, 16 years old, and a kid in their town, a lacrosse player, is injured in a car accident. And so they're gonna have one of those 5K benefit runs for this lacrosse kid. And so little Ricky Hoyt tells his daddy by clicking his mouth that he wants to go run in this 5K for this kid because he knows what he's been through. And so they go, and his dad has never run a lick in his life. And they go run this 5K. And you know what he says at the end of the 5K? Little Ricky Hoyt said, it's the first time in my life that I don't feel handicapped. And there's a lot of handicapped people in this room. We might not be physically handicapped, but we're handicapped by what Satan's doing. And it's time for us to get real. Well, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. You see, uh, Little Ricky Hoyt and Dick Hoyt decided to run a triathlon. Not just any triathlon, the Ironman, 118 mile bike, two and a half mile swim, 26.2 mile run. And this is their story. We'll watch it and then I'll close this out. We serve a big God. I'm thankful that my Jesus loves me like that. Aren't you? So cool when that daddy picks his son up out of the boat and he just carries him and carries him forever. Because I know when it comes to the end of our race, when it comes to the end of our life, isn't that all that really matters? Is that Jesus is just picking us up and running us to that finish line. And as we, uh, as we partake of the elements this morning uh, and Matt and the team come forward and uh, just begin to play some worship, I pray that we just take a couple minutes quietly where we're at and just bow our heads. And thank Jesus for loving us like that. Amen? Thanks for being our daddy. Let's pray. God, thanks so much um, for this morning and thanks for your word. Lord, I pray that we would be motivated, not out of fear, Lord, not out of fear of going to hell, not out of things that we're told to do in our lives, Lord, but I pray that our motivation would be simply that we love our daddy and we want to please him. Lord, as recent studies show, 4% of kids 8 to 18 have a personal relationship with you. 4%. I pray that you would change us, change our hearts today, make us passionate followers so that as we chase after the cross, Lord, as we run towards you, that we'd take kiddos with us. We'd take family with us. We'd take small groups with us. And we would sprint towards you. And when we can't run any harder, Lord, pick us up and run us to that finish line. We love you so much.